We have a full chapter of Genesis 42. Um, this thing is chock full. I wish, I wish we could have had another five Sundays just on this chapter. Of course, everybody that comes up here says that. There's just so much here, and I'm grateful for Arnold, where is he, last week that teed up chapter 42 for us. So thankful for his efforts. Uh, if, if you haven't heard uh, chapter 41, go back and listen to that. Chapter 42, as you can see from the handouts there, the title is just the, the same question that the brothers ask of themselves, and that is, what has God done to us? They went through a lot, and so we're going to deal with that question, what has God done to us? This chapter is about famine. It's about starvation. It's about doing what needs to be done to get food on the table. And just out of curiosity, I just uh, did a search on the internet. That's the place where all truth is found, on the internet. And I asked the internet, what causes famine? And so the first one that popped up, I thought, well, I got to find something different. This thing is really agenda-driven. But I thought, no, I'm going back to it just because of what they said. So what causes famine according to this site? And this guy is very serious, as I said, and it's a, an agenda-driven website. They said poverty, okay, poverty causes famine. Unequal wealth distribution, I say, okay, I know where this is going. And, and then came the next one, and I just about died laughing in my office. It's um, gender discrimination. <laughs> uh, of course, that's the conclusion we would have come up with at least 20 years ago. Uh, the other one is orphans. There's too many children on the planet that don't have moms or dads. Then substance abuse, well, that sounds a little reasonable. And then he says corruption and wars. Well, then I'm thinking to myself, well, what would be their plan to solve this? And their plan to solve it was even more goofy than their identification of what causes famine. So here it is. Reduce gender discrimination. Okay. Avoid delivery services. Well, so I worked for FedEx for 20 years, right? And, and I have a really sweet pension through them that one of these days I want to collect, but... That might do away with my pension. Uh, we need to fight corruption. Well, that's good. A redistribution of wealth. Well, I got a chuckle out of that, which by definition is theft and is itself corruption. When COVID first hit, we said, where's all the toilet paper? Uh, there's a famine for toilet paper in the land. Baby formula just vanished. Where'd it go? I'm glad I didn't have any little babies at home. Well, food prices increased, car prices soared through the roofs, dealerships, they couldn't keep inventory on their lots and in their showrooms, and they competed with one another for the price of scarce inventory. Right now, today, the median income in the United States is $35,000, while the median home price is an astounding $492,000, what causes famine. A 30-year loan can hardly subsidize a dozen eggs, <laughs> let alone a home itself. And by the way, home loans have doubled from around 3% to more than doubled to about 7%. I looked up the U.S. debt clock. If you ever want to have a shocking experience, just look that up on the Internet, U.S. debt clock. National debt is nearing 32 trillion with a T dollars, that puts every taxpayer, every taxpayer in the United States on the hook for about $247,000 just to satisfy our loans. According to the U.S. inflation calculator from December 2021 to December 2022, food prices, you would probably agree with this, increased by 10.4%. Cereal and bakery products increased by 16.4%. 1%. Meats, that's poultry and fish. They threw eggs into that category. This seems kind of low, but 7.7%. Dairy products came in at 15.3%. Fruits and vegetables, 8.4%. And we wonder, why is there famine in the land? You see, this can't be sustained. People are going hungry, and there's no end in sight. Dare we ask the same question that the brothers pose in Genesis 42, 28, 
What is this that God has done to us? Really, a more appropriate question for that would be, what is this wickedness that we have done to ourselves and how will God repurpose our evil behaviors for his glory and our good? Isn't that a much more appropriate question rather than blaming it all on God as if he did something evil? So welcome to Genesis 42. Our chapter occurs in about the year 1878 B.C. It's critical to the entire Bible because it compels us to see that God is in control even in the most dreadful situations. And I'm not just talking about the famine of Genesis 42. I'm talking about the daily activities, the daily stresses on our own lives, the memories of the things that we've gone through and the things that are going to happen while we're still living that we would look back on and say, wow, how did we survive that? Genesis 42 moves us, moves you to grasp that because there is a famine for the truth, you must confess your sin and forsake unrighteousness so that you may learn from God's providence and live. That's really the upshot of this entire chapter. And really to allow us to discern God's providence, we're looking at, at four kinds of famine. Four kinds of famine as the text unfolds. There's a famine in a family. That's, of course, Jacob's family, verses one through six. There's a famine leading to truth, verses six through seven. And there's a famine leading to the confession of sin, verses 18 through 28, and then lastly, a famine leading to fear, and oddly enough, disobedience in verses 29 through 38. Well, first, God instructs us about his providence by working through Joseph's dysfunctional family. That's an appropriate word to describe Joseph's family, dysfunctional. Follow along with me as I read the first six verses and then we'll make our way through the text as we make our way through each point. Chapter 42, verse one, we read these words. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? He said, behold, I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some food for us from that place so that we may live and not die. The 10 brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I'm afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land for he was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him, their faces to the ground. In Genesis 37, 2, it's a passage that reminds us that we are looking at Jacob's family, the generations of Jacob's family. If you've been around uh, in Genesis long enough, you heard the word toledot. This is the final Toledot, the final explanation of a particular family, the generation of Jacob. You see, Jacob is Abraham's grandson, and he is Isaac's son. Jacob's 12 sons are birthed by four different mothers. Jacob's family was a mess. First, there's the dad, Jacob himself. He's a known deceiver. He conned his blind father, Isaac, into thinking that he was his eldest son, Esau. You should remember that as we went through that section of Genesis. Jacob received Esau's inheritance and blessing, fearing and fearing that his older brother Esau would kill him, he fled to his mother's homeland where he meets his uncle Laban. You remember Uncle Laban, a man far more proficient in the art of deception than Jacob himself. He learned from him, of course. 
You know the story. Jacob fell in love with Laban's younger daughter, Rachel, and agreed to work for seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage. After seven years of labor, Laban duped Jacob and betrothed him to his eldest daughter. That was a problem. So what happens is Laban ensnares Jacob into working another seven years for Rachel. For this budding family, the art of deception flourished like, if you're familiar with Georgia and other surrounding areas, kudzu on a hot, humid day. That stuff grows like 18 inches a day. This is the kind of deception that they are learning to foster on one another, even in their own family. The competition is on. Rachel and Leah compete for Jacob's affections. The wife with the most babies wins. How would you like that competition? (laughs) So the women give Jacob their maidservants to see which of the four of them would produce the most kids. All four women trafficked in jealousy and in competition and won upsmanship. Their children watched as their parents brought on an escalating duplicity and the art of deception to greater heights, or shall we say depths, of depravity. I once heard this quote from a professor I had in college, what parents do in moderation, their children will do in excess. Uh, The sin that a parent commits in the presence of their kid, time and again, the kid will outdo in quantity what the parent does. This is what we see with Jacob's kids. Their children watched their parents escalating duplicity, and I said, they took it to a whole new level. Joseph was Rachel's firstborn, Jacob's most loved child. The jealous siblings hated Joseph for his favored son reputation. When Joseph revealed his dreams, remember those couple of dreams he had back in Chapter 37, when he revealed those dreams to his family that they would bow down to him as Lord, as if bowing down to a king, that he would one day rule over him. Remember the text that said they hated him even more. Where did they learn that kind of hatred? Well, they saw it modeled at home. Does this sound familiar? Genesis 37, rather than kill Joseph... They stripped him of his clothes. Remember that their father, Jacob, made a handmade, it was a handmade varicolored tunic. They they tore it off of him. You should recall how they threw him nearly naked into a waterless cistern and then sold him off into slavery, into Egypt. That's how they treated their brother. And to conceal their sin, (laughs) they duped Jacob They duped him to believe that a wild animal devoured his son, Joseph. Well, there's a famine for love and truth in Jacob's barbarous family about which they must be confronted. And in chapter 42, we have the doors opened on the confrontation that God gives these brothers through Joseph himself. You see, God uses hunger on a massive scale in Canaan and all of Egypt to bring them to conviction of sin. God goes all out to bring them to that point. From Genesis 42.20, we ponder again the same question that the brothers asked, that they posed of one another, what is God doing to us? You ever ask that question? You ever on the point of life where you're so deep in the pit, you're just going, God, what are you doing? That's where these guys are. Maybe they're the first ones to ask that question. So herein, we see a a quest for truth that doesn't go unanswered. Why do bad things happen to bad people? Sometimes bad things happen to bad people because God wants us to see we are on a path to self-destruction without him. 
His judgment in these kinds of cases can be a gracious mercy on our lives to wake us up, to tell us that when you're in a ditch like this, I want you to know that I'm in control. And that's what chapter 42 is all about. He demands that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Matthew 22, 36 through 37. So here we are, 20 years after they presumably eradicated themselves from their dreaming brother, the family, famished for love and for truth, faces the possibility of starving to death because God has a big plan for them. In Genesis 41, 55 through 57, God's sovereign appointment, should I say by God's sovereign appointment, Joseph is the Lord of the land. No one in Egypt receives food without Brother Joseph's consent. <laughs> wow, these guys are about for, in for a wake-up call. The brothers are on a collision course with Joseph's offensive dreams from chapter 37, which was, by the way, their worst nightmare. They joked with him, are you serious? You think we're gonna bow down to you as if you're our king? Notice Genesis 41, 57 just one verse before, Genesis 42, the masses of refugees came to Egypt to buy food from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth, at least the earth as they understood it. And in Genesis 42, one, it begins with a little tiny important word, the word now, N-O-W. Now, in Genesis 42.1, can also be translated as it often is in the Hebrew to English language as the word then, T-H-E-N. In other words, it connects the two chapters together by a really important word. You see, the people of the earth came to Egypt to buy food from Joseph because there was, the famine was severe in all the earth. Then Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and he said to his sons, why do you keep staring at yourselves? Get up and do something. As they lazily gaze at one another, people around them are starving to death, literally going hungry. Finally, in verses three through five, the brothers joined a caravan bound for Egypt to buy food from a man with the Egyptian name, Safnat Paneha. That's Joseph's new name. Remember, we heard about that last week in Genesis 41, 45. Safnat Paneha, a.k.a. the dreamer in 37, 19, a.k.a. brother Joseph. Notice who's not with them in verse four. Joseph's only full-blooded brother, Benjamin, this important detail mustn't be missed because it plays such a vital role throughout the rest of this chapter. Benjamin is a key character, as we're about to see. Jacob believes his beloved son, Joseph, is dead, so Benjamin takes the place of the favored son category. Jacob feared that harm may befall Benjamin because he still believed his son's deception that Joseph was killed, uh, devoured by a wild animal in chapter 37. Verse four, the word harm there, do you see it? This word harm only appears in the Hebrew Bible. That's our Old Testament five times. Two of which are found right here in Genesis 42. And another is found in Genesis 44, 29, uh, describing the same situation. The two other times it's found is in Exodus, chapter 21, verses 22 through 23. In this case, it describes the physical injury to a pregnant woman's unborn baby. So in this case, harm implies a fatal accident. Jacob fears that Benjamin would be killed on his journey to Egypt. 
And in verse 36 of chapter 42, Jacob reminds the brothers that they already bereaved him of his children. In verse 36, Joseph was on Jacob's mind and he feared for his incarcerated son that we're about to be more acquainted with here in a moment, Simeon. See, Simeon is in jail or will be in jail. The word bereaved in verse 36 can be translated make childless. It can also be translated as it is other places in scripture as miscarry or causing an abortion, which in Exodus 21, 23 may require capital punishment for the baby's killer. This is how serious God took life. Why is there famine in the land, we ask the question? Because there's a famine for truth. And they're about to come face to face with their sin so that they might forsake their unrighteousness and from God's perspective, live. This confrontation must take place. Our chapter provides really a second way for God to instruct us about his providence and how it works through famine. Let's glance down to verses six through 17. I'm gonna read verse six again, and we'll make our way through verse 17 to keep things in context. Now Joseph was the one in power over all the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly, and he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he had which he had about them and said, you are spies and you have come to look at the nakedness of the land. Then they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are all honest men. Your servants are not spies. And he said to them, no, but you have come to look at the nakedness of our land. They said, Your servants are 12 brothers in all, the sons of one man of the land of Canaan, the eldest, or behold, your youngest is with our father today, and one, meaning Joseph, is no more. Joseph then said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely your spies. Remembering the brothers sold Joseph into Egypt and deceived their dad into thinking a wild animal devoured him. But 20 years later, they meet the governor of Egypt. Their brother Joseph disguises himself. Safnat Paneah from Genesis 41:45, he is the lord of the land. They're fully aware that this man controls whether they live or die. How do we know that? We need to turn back to Genesis 37. And as you're turning to Genesis 37, I'll just say this, as you're turning, realize their worst nightmare from Genesis 42, 6, which reads, Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. So Genesis 37, I'm gonna pick it up at verse six. And Joseph has this dream and he relays it to him and Verses six through 11, he said to them, please listen to this dream which I have had. Again, this is 20 years before chapter 42. He says this, indeed, behold, we are binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf rose up and also stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brother said to him, are you really gonna reign over us? Or, or are you really going to rule over us? Remember that word there is the 
uh, noun form, or the verb form of the noun king. You're really gonna be king over us? Or are you really gonna rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse nine. Then he had still another dream and recounted it to his brothers and said, behold, I have had still another dream and behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And he recounted it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers really bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. We know from Genesis 37, 18 through 25, that after all this, they preferred a dead Joseph over bowing down to him as though he was their king. And in Genesis 37, 26 through 28, uh, we see that 20 shekels of silver was worth more to them than his dead body. So they sold him in slavery. As with you and as with me, their time has come for reckoning with the truth. God is using Joseph as an agent to rock their world. This is tough stuff for them. In verse seven, back in chapter 42, Joseph knows exactly who they are, but he wants them to admit something. He wants them to acknowledge. He wants them to fess up to their true character. At that moment, Joseph's crystal clear memory of the brother's harsh words 20 years earlier consumed his thinking. It's like, wow, I remember that dream I had, and now look what they're doing. Now their brothers find themselves on the receiving end of Joseph's harsh comments. They learn very quickly that their hunger is surpassed only by their own famine for the truth. This dysfunctional family is about to hear and experience the providence of God working in their lives to bring about conviction and confession of sin. Joseph wisely isolates the facts through a series of tests. 20 years earlier, he knew his brothers as merciless, lying snakes. It was the first time he's seen them since then. He has some tests for them, and these tests will uncover whether their past reputation as liars remains a current reality in their lives, because how he treats them will be determined on how they answer his questions. I'll let the depositions begin. The first test for truth in verse seven, he says to them, where have you come from? Well, any answer in this case but Canaan would be a colossal mistake. Whew. They did the right thing. They said we came from Canaan. So they answered correctly and they even added an important truth. We came to Egypt to buy food. I want you to see that word recognized in verse three. It's used three times in verses seven and eight, and it plays an important role in Genesis, really pertaining to sin in this case. In Genesis 27, 23, you shouldn't forget that Isaac did not recognize Jacob because his hands were hairy, like whose? Esau's, he didn't recognize because he heard Jacob's voice. It didn't make sense to him. Genesis 20, uh, 38, 26, Judah recognized his signet ring, his cords and, cords and his staff, and said that his daughter-in-law who was holding them, Tamar, with whom he committed adultery, is more righteous than he. He recognized these things. Recognized also can be translated in the Hebrew Bible as the word examine. We would recognize that from Genesis 37, 32. The brothers directed Jacob to examine in the New American Standard and in the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible, 
recognize. So the brothers directed Jacob to examine or to recognize Joseph's blood-soaked, varicolored tunic. And in verse 33 of that text, Jacob recognized it and determined that a wild animal had ripped his own son, Joseph, to pieces. It's no wonder the author, the writer of Hebrews 4.13 says this, this should convict us even today. There is no creature, you're familiar with this text, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. If you're not in Christ, then you love your sin. You must recognize that you are laid bare before the eyes of him with whom you have to do. Today, like the brothers back then, is the perfect day to be convicted of sin and to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to place your life in his care. Well, there's a second test for truth. The deposition continues. In verse nine, Sapnat Panea, that's who they knew him to be. Uh, the Lord of Egypt, who they knew him to be, says to them, you are spies, you have come to look at the undefended parts of the land. That's the New American Standard Version. We would say, oh, the irony. This is indeed ironic. Joseph knows something about spying, doesn't he? Do you remember back in Genesis 37 that Jacob sent his son Joseph to spy on his brothers who were tending their flocks in Shechem? Why would he have them spy on them in Shechem? Well, Shechem is where Simeon and Levi had recently killed a bunch of men, including Shechem. Who's Shechem? He's the guy that raped their sister Dinah that Jacob did nothing about. Oh, so Joseph knows something about spying. There's more test in here, more recognition of irony in test two. You should note in your Bible in verse eight, indicating that the in New American Standard, the undefended parts of the land can also be translated the nakedness of the land. The nakedness of the land. Isn't that a stunning recognition? You see, Joseph and his brothers knew something about nakedness. Back in Genesis 37, 33, the last time they laid eyes on one another is when they stripped Joseph of his varicolored tunic probably leaving him naked or at best scantily clad at the bottom of a waterless cistern. That's probably one of the last times they saw him was in that nakedness kind of appearance. Well, back in Genesis 42.9, Joseph sees them for the first time in probably two decades, in two decades, and he accuses them of spying out. I just love the way the Bible's put together. It's just brilliant spying out the nakedness of the land. He's like, the last time you saw me, I was naked. Mm. To pass test number two, the brothers reiterated that they only wanted to buy food. To validate some form of their own integrity in verse 11, they proffer up three lines of evidence in their first defense against Joseph's charges. Number one, they're the sons of one man. Well, that's true. They are honest men. Oh, come on. Joseph, I mean, is he laughing or crying at this point? I would love to see how this played out back then. And that they are spies. Joseph hears their lie. He knows what they did to other people, and he certainly knows what they did to him Based on his own personal experience, these guys are not trustworthy. And so the depositions carry on here. He wants to find out whether or not they are trustworthy. Verse 12, they make it easy for Joseph to reassert that they are indeed spies, hoping to persuade Sapnat Pernea. The brothers counter his accusation with the second defense in verse 13. Here they go. There are 12 brothers in all, check. Sons of one man in the land of Canaan, check. The youngest brother is at home with their father, check. 
the remaining son is no longer alive. Ah, they're talking to the remaining son. They don't know it yet because he's disguised themselves from them. Joseph knows the first three statements are true, but the fourth claim, Joseph is alive and well. He's the guy they're bowing down to. He's the guy that controls whether or not they live or die of starvation. Truth test number two ends with, and if you're like me in grade school, you saw a lot of these, a big, fat, red F. (laughs) They should have said that Joseph has been missing for 20 years, and at this point in time, they didn't know his whereabouts. That would have been a more honest answer. Their honesty is met with Joseph's repeated charge in verse 14, you are spies. They're not the honest guys that they thought they were or positioned themselves to be. Beginning in verse 15, Joseph triples down with a third test. Uh, Chapter 42, if you'll join me there in Genesis 42, verse 15, if you're not already there. He says this, by this you will be tested, colon, by the life of Pharaoh, You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Hmm. Two important observations to consider. Benjamin replaced Joseph as Jacob's favored son. Joseph wanted to know something. He wanted to know if his brothers had banished Benjamin from the family too. If Benjamin remains alive to fulfill Genesis 37, his dreams in Genesis 37, well, then Benjamin needs to be there bowing down to him as Lord also. Invoking the name of the life of Pharaoh guarantees that they will remain prisoners until the 12th brother shows up. Wow. Conviction is beginning to weigh heavy on their hearts, as we're about to find out. As for the brothers in verse 16, this third test requires them to choose who will bring Benjamin back while the other nine remain incarcerated in that prison of theirs. That, oh, by the way, Joseph spent a long time in himself. Confined is a Another prominent word in this context, the word confined. I mean, who can forget Genesis 39, 20? Joseph was confined in prison. Genesis 40, verse five, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker were confined in that jail. You'll recall from Genesis 37, 24, that the brothers confined Joseph in the bottom of a waterless Cistern. You see how all these words are coming back to generate conviction of their own sin in their lives? Memories of our sin, if they are unconfessed, if, they are un, if they're not brought before our Lord, are those very things that will haunt us throughout our lives until God finally brings us to the point in our own barren prison of our own heart to say, God, I have done you wrong. I have sinned against you only and against you only have I sinned. Who does that sound like? David, Psalm 51. Ironically, in Genesis 42, 17, Joseph confines them all together in prison for three days. If Benjamin doesn't show up, then Joseph's accusation stands. They are spies. We've seen a famine in the land and a famine for love and honesty in Jacob's family and now it's time to see how these two kinds of famine lead to a confession of sin, really a conviction of sin. We'll be looking at the contents of verses 18 through 28. I'm not gonna read all the verses now. I'm gonna read some along the way. For three days of confinement, that was ample time for them to examine their situation. They're in a pit. They are confined. They are locked up. There is no freedom except to examine what they had done in their own lives. 
20 years earlier, they heartlessly sold Joseph into slavery. Think about it. As they stare at one another like the chapter began in this prison that they're in now, they have to decide amongst them who's trustworthy enough to tell dad the truth about Simeon's situation in Egypt because Simeon's going to be thrown in prison while the rest of them go tell dad. No, excuse me, I got that backwards, but ultimately that's what happened. In other words, which brother is savvy enough to sell their dad on the idea that Benjamin will be safe and have a safe journey back to Egypt? None of these guys are trustworthy. I mean, if one goes back, the others remain in prison. He may say, I don't know what happened to my brothers. They're gone. Saved his own neck. There's a problem. There's a famine in the land. They could still starve to death. All this hinges on passing the test, proving to Safnat Paneah that they're not spies. Look at verse 18. And Joseph said to them, on the third day, in other words, three days go by, do this and live, for I fear God. Because Jacob fears God, test three continues. Excuse me, I said Jacob, that should have been Joseph. Because Joseph fears God, test three continues. Joseph changes his plan. In verse 24, the brothers watched Joseph bind Simeon and confine him in prison. Because Joseph feared God, he sent them home with food for their families. Now they gotta bring Benjamin back to Egypt so that the famine doesn't kill them. The famine produces the results that we've been looking for. They haven't resolved their hunger problems, though. But for the famine, the famine is solving a far more important crisis in their lives, and it's the conviction of sin. Look at verses 24 through 27. And they turned away from them and wept. Excuse me, and he, that's Joseph, turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money. That's important. He restored every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. For two decades, they thought they got away with it. The hound of heaven is patient. He brings them to the brink of starvation until finally they realize, they recognize what they had done. And they recognize what they had done, as they'll later see, even in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, that the evil that they did was repurposed for good by God himself. So back in Genesis 42, this is where the brothers tell us what they saw. They quoted what Joseph said to them while trapped naked and defenseless in a pit. In Genesis 42, 21, confessions of sin are graphic. Genesis 42, 21, here's what they said. Then they said to one another, surely we're guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul and begged us, he begged us, yet we wouldn't listen. Therefore, his distress has come upon us. As I said, their confessions are graphic. They they observed Joseph's soul and distress in the bottom of that cistern. They recalled Joseph pleading with them, and they refused to listen to Joseph. The New American Standard uses the word pleaded, pleaded. It can mean implore. It can mean show compassion. It can, it can indicate be gracious, be merciful. They recall their brother, the bottom of that waterless cistern, as if it was the same hour that they were thinking of it. They remembered Joseph's tender cries for grace and mercy. We didn't read about those cries in chapter 37 when that happened. This is what they remember 20 years later. 
but their confession includes a, a callous refusal to listen to Joseph. Again, verses 24 and 25. And they turned away from him and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from, from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their bags with this grain and to restore their money. Joseph wept over their confession, but that didn't keep them or keep him from pursuing truth test number three. And it sets the stage of that confession in verses 27 through 28. In verses 27 to 28, we read, then one of them opened his sack and gave his donkey, to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, and he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of the sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? The word buy, B-U-Y, purchase, buy, is used five times in Genesis 42. Three times they told Joseph they simply wanted to buy some food. This money questions their integrity. They came to buy food, not steal it. From their perspective, now that they realize what happened here, Sapnat Panea will never believe that they're honest men in their thinking because they have his money. Simeon, who's in jail, will remain incarcerated and dad would never allow Benjamin to go back to Egypt and the family could starve to death. This is trouble for them. Perhaps their situation reminds you of dark places in your own life. They are in a pitiful place. They're, they're trembling in fear, physically shaken. They're hopeless. They're distraught. Does any of that sound familiar? God, what are you doing? Severe depression has them frozen in time, and, and once again, as the chapter started, they're staring at one another. God, what are you doing? It's the same question you may be asking yourself. What is this that God has done to us? Well, as we're about to see, only Pharaoh, only Pharaoh and only Joseph know what God is doing to the sons of Jacob. There are only two appropriate questions these men should be asking. How have we proven our lack of love for God and our neighbor? As I was listening to our pastor this morning preach through 3 John, I thought, if only the brothers could hear Pastor Pennington preach this message. A lack of love for God and a lack of love for their neighbors, how will God repurpose our evil actions for his glory and our good? That's what they should be asking. Well, we've seen a famine in the land and a starvation for love and honesty in Jacob's family, and we've heard the brothers confess their sin. Well, let's move on to famine leading to fear and disobedience. Famine leading to fear and disobedience. Look at chapter 42. Verses 29 to the remaining portion of the chapter. They came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan and told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us and took us for spies of the country. So we said to him, we're honest men, we're not spies. We're 12 brothers, sons of one father, one is no more, and the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. <coughs> then the man, the Lord of the land, said to, said to us, by this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your household and go. 
but bring your youngest brother to me so that I may know that you're not spies, but honest men. I will give your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. So they relayed these things to their father Jacob, and in verse 35 we read, now it happened that they were emptying their sacks, and behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack, and they and their father saw their bundles of money, and they feared. This is the second time they see the money, and they tremble in fear. Verse 36, and their father Jacob said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Who's he speaking about? Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. He's in jail. And you would take Benjamin? All these things are against me. You are not trustworthy. Verse 37, then Reuben spoke to his father saying, you may put my two sons to death. Well, there's a bargaining chip. You may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hand and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you. His brother is dead. 20 years later, he still thinks that Joseph was devoured by that animal. They never fessed up to it. So he says, his brother is dead and he alone remains. If harm should befall him on the journey on which you are going, then you'll bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. I will die in sorrow for the death of my son Benjamin. Verses 29 through 35 is a recounting of their experiences and really for the, the sake of time, I just want to focus our attention on the, on the big picture of what's happening here. You see, the Lord of the land, Sapnap Panea, accused them of being spies. He refused to sell them food without producing Benjamin. He wants to know that his little brother is okay. Again, he probably has in his mind that they may have did, done the same thing to Benjamin that they did to him. Are they really honest people? They told their dad they didn't pay for the food. The, the money was right there as they opened up the feed sacks and that Simeon was in prison. So in verse 35, they were, no kidding, dismayed and they were fearful. And their fear reinforces their father Jacob's fright. Because Jacob, as I said, he, he doesn't know the whole story. They didn't tell him the whole story of what went on in Egypt. They didn't tell him the whole story of what they'd done to his beloved son Joseph 20 years earlier. So for Jacob, his disobedience is somewhat understandable here. But for now, Jacob is willing for Simeon to rot in prison and for his family to die of starvation before he's going to let Benjamin go to Egypt. Back in verse 28, back in verse 28, they ask the question, what is this that God has done to us? Yeah, no kidding. What is this that God has done to us? I want you to turn back to Genesis 41. Forty-one twenty-five. In a sense, their question is accurate. Because in verse 25, when Joseph relayed Pharaoh's dream back to him and gave them the interpret, he gave them the interpretation, we read these words. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has declared to Pharaoh what he's about to do. I'm thankful for Arnold's recognition, his rightful recognition last week of the Hebrew language here. What he says here is the God has told Pharaoh what he's about to do. 
It's true that the word God there is plural, Elohim, the gods. Uh, it's a plural of intensity. There are no other gods but God himself. There's not a plurality of gods. The gods, he's saying that the God, the one and only God, has disclosed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Verse 28. God, the God, has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. That's the second time. Verse 32. The God. Let me just read it. The matter is confirmed by the God, and the God will quickly bring it about. I said that only Pharaoh and Joseph were the only ones that knew exactly what was going on in these brothers' lives. How do they know? Because God is bringing out a famine, and he's bringing it out to convict these brothers of sin, and it's not just the brothers that he's after, he's after the whole world. The whole world is coming to Egypt for food. His heart is for the nations. He saves the nations through his choice of Joseph to banish him to a foreign nation, to lay dying in a prison till one day he would be as equal to the king of the land. And these brothers would show up and they would bow down to him just as his dream said. And Joseph would be the one that would be the one who would rescue ultimately the nations in that area. It's interesting, in my studies I found that the Greek translation of the, what's called the Septuagint, the LXX, that was the Bible that probably Jesus read from. Maybe not Jesus, could have been Aramaic. But early on, hundreds of years before the New Testament came out, there was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and the word sapna panea, they translated as savior of the world. Now, whether or not that's true, I don't know, but in this case, Joseph, in this case, was indeed the savior of the world. And so, he's the one that they go to. And they plead for mercy from him. As for each of us, in this case, there's only two appropriate questions. How have I proven my lack of love for God to my neighbor? And how will God repurpose my, equal, my evil actions for his glory? I was reminded this week of John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. And I thought, what an appropriate hymn that would be sung in a situation like this. I'll just read you the first couple of lines. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. What has God done to us? What has God done to you? John 3.16 he gave his only son that all those who are believing in him will have eternal life. That's what he did. He had compassion on us, and that's amazing grace. Father, we're thankful for Genesis 42. We're thankful that you've opened our eyes to have an understanding for the tragedy that took place so many years ago in Genesis 42 in the lives of these brothers, their family, and the surrounding from what they understood to be the whole world starving. And yet you rescued through Joseph providentially. You were the rescuer. Many from death and would use this nation the Genesis 3.16 seed comes from this family and Jesus would be that seed. And he would be the one 
who would live a sinless life. He would be the one to rescue your people. He is the savior of the whole world from time and eternity. For those who are believing in him, for those who turn from sin, from those who, who evidence their salvation through key passages like we heard this morning in 1 John 3, that we would love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that our evidence for you would be seen in the way that we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, these brothers were convicted to the core, and they were shown much mercy as we're about to see over the next few weeks. You have shown us much greater mercy. And for that, we're grateful. In Christ's name we pray, amen.